Hello, everyone, and welcome back. It's the Full 40 with Chris and Rob, part of the Stay Tuned Network, brought to you by Nova Insider. We're back with another special edition of the Full 40. On with us is number two, Randy Foy. Randy, thank you for joining us. There's so many things on your resume, like foundation, like 11, 12-year NBA career, a Big East, former Big East Player of the Year, Big East co-champion. You know, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't list them all. So I just decided to just go right into it with the number. <laughs> yeah, man, I appreciate that. Um, just to be a part of that group that I was a part of and just to see everything come together the way it has came together now. It's just like, I'm just so proud of being a part of that uh, that basketball um, program. Yeah. yeah, well, it's it's awesome. And thank you so much for, for, for coming on with us today. Um, we're honored to have you on. So we have a bunch of questions for you. We still want to talk about so many different things. But a lot of our listeners are a little bit younger. So like we were we overlapped with you by one year when we were in school. We graduated 09, you 06. Um, and a lot of our listeners are a little bit younger and weren't there for the 040506 runs and I tell people this often like if you weren't there for that time frame the 0405 and 0506 run like that year and a half or so like that felt like the entire 2016 NCAA tournament for an entire season and a half so like I try to tell people this all the time but like I feel like we just need to bring you on to to talk to you about it and I just wanted to start there because you you guys obviously didn't have the success that you were looking to have obviously you were built Building towards it, but you made the NIT the first couple of years when you were on campus, and then you get into 0405. So I wanted to know, I wanted to get a sense from you, like what was the feeling coming in to that 0405 season, knowing that you had started to build something, but the results weren't there, and knowing that you only had a couple of years left on campus. Yeah, towards the end of my sophomore year, we started to we started to feel something that you know we were like I wouldn't say we were fighting coach right, but a lot of the things that he were doing just seemed so basic, right? And just like he's explaining to us, you know, if you if you jump stop in a paint, you know, if you pivot and, and kick it out opposite, just like real basic things that, you know, any basketball player or all basketball players um, should learn um, at an early age. But, you know, we were inner city kids and that's when and one mixtape um, and all of that stuff at the Rucker Park. It just was all about, you know, doing flashy moves and people with crazy crossovers. So we had that, right? But Coach Wright, his whole um, message to us was like, yes, you have that. But b- before I let you guys, you know, go out there and just, you know, cross people up and do all type of other stuff, you have to do it my way. And we fought him. We fought him. And towards the end of my sophomore year, it just was like a couple situations that, you know, I was in, that Alan was in, that we can like, you know, pivot in the right way and, and getting the ball out, you know, you're finding the people wide open. And it's like, all right, if you go this way, it's like going against the grain of the defense. And this dude is over here wide open because they expect you to make the pass this way. And this is just the way defenses are taught 
that if a guy comes from this way, this is where you're supposed to be. This is where you're supposed to be. And the rest of the other three offensive players, I mean, defensive players. But then we start doing it his way. And when we start doing it his way, it start working. And then when we do it, when we did it his way, and then we added, you know, a little bit what we did or what we brought to the table. It just was like, whoa, this is scary. And then we went to, you know, I think um, Seton Hall was ranked high. Um, Providence was ranked really high. And we went to the Big East tournament. And we were one game away from my sophomore year of playing um, in the Big East championship. We lost to Connecticut, but we felt it there. And then my junior year, we just was like, you know, as a as an older group, as a, you know, being an number one recruiting class coming in and not living up to it, we was like, this is the year. It's do or die. Like, if we don't do it this year, then we don't want to be looked at as bus. So we went in. We had a great summer. You know, we added an unbelievable um, guard, point guard in Kyle Lowry. Just, I think people have heard of him. I think you've heard yeah, of him. A lot of people has heard of him. But we, <laughs> went, we went after it. We went after it every single day, fights in the summertime. But we just went after it. And it was, I don't really think, I, I think Coach Wright kind of steered us in the right direction my junior year. Um, but I don't really think he, he didn't coach us as hard yeah. as he did the, the two years he kind of I think he saw it you know he saw the determination he saw exactly what we wanted out of out of our situations and like my I have a model that I always say I always say CYD control your destiny and I and I just wanted to do that and I wanted to be the one of the the first classes not just the first guy but the first class to to buy back into you know getting over to the tournament to buy into everything that coach Wright said even though I fought it early on but I bought all the way back in you know halfway through my sophomore year and it worked out for me right and obviously that 0405 year you were one horrible call away from the elite eight. Oh my god um, terrible <laughs> but really felt like you guys caught your groove in that kansas game and then from there it seemed like you guys were off to the races for the rest of your career it felt felt like what was it like going through kind of going into that as you were rounding out the end of that season in 0405, going into that 0506 year and dealing with the injuries that all you guys dealt with, like it, with between, I mean, Jason Frazier never seemed to ever be the same after his, you know, with his knee injuries, and then obviously Curtis with his. Uh, with his ACL, Curtis Sumter, like, what was it like kind of getting prepared with, like, because it didn't seem on the court to phase you guys. And obviously there's, there's so much written about the four guard lineup, et cetera, but kind of like looking back at that, how did you guys get over that hump of just like facing such a critical player, getting such a terrible injury? I would say, I would say that the the program does an unbelievable job of keeping you well-grounded where you're not reading newspapers. You're not looking at ESPN. Um, you're not doing anything. Everything you're so locked into what you need to do um, to be successful on the court and in the classroom that you really don't have time for that. You know, we, we watch film, um, coach pump us up. Um, he let us know when we're doing right and he, and he let us know when we're doing wrong. But, you know, we're we're protected from that, from upperclassmen, and which I was at that time, and just letting the lower classmen, like these people will, you know, throw a parade for you and say you're the best thing ever if you score 30. And if you, you have five points the next game, they'll say you're the worst player. So you got to kind of, you got to stay on that fine line where um, if I have a good game or if I have a bad game, I'm playing Villanova basketball. And I think that was, that was something that Coach Wright and his, and his staff was amazing at. Like never read any clippings or anything like that just all about you know executing the next play the next minute 
uh, after that game, worrying about the next game, worrying about class, really never worrying about anything else. You know, we had a job to do. And when that last buzzer went off, then you can kind of sit back and say, hey, you know, I had this, I had this big game, I had that big game, or we did this, but I'm about to get my degree. That's when you kind of get a chance to to look back on the, the things and say, wow, I did all of this stuff. But um, while you're in the moment, um, it's no time for that. And, it, and the staff and Coach Wright did a great job of um, just keeping us all on the right track. So in other words, with the injuries, you guys just stay focused on the task. Yeah, and- that's it. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's it. Like with the injuries and everything, it's just like we knew Kurt was hurt and we were there for Kurt off the court. But Kurt and Jason whole makeup was don't worry about me. I'm fine. Go take care of business. So it was never no time to feel sorry for him. It's just like at any program, it's like next man up. So we're looking at, you know, Will Sheridan. We're looking at Dante Cunningham. And it's like, that's why you prepare every single player to be ready, because if someone get hurt, which we know in sports, it happens all the time. You have to be ready. So yeah. we like our our guys like never allowed us to feel sorry for them, and they they were always a part of the team. Like you you really like after surgery or something like if you, someone had surgery or someone was like missing for like three or four days, you really like looked around and was like, oh, where's this person at? Because they were right back in the mix. Only thing was they were not on the court, but film just being around the team, they were right back with us, but. They, the only thing was they weren't on the court with us. So we didn't have no time to to feel sorry for Kurt. Did we, you know, say, man, that was that's a big loss? Absolutely. But it wasn't no time because we had games. And you think that, you know, Kansas was going to come in there and feel sorry for us or Syracuse was going to come in there and feel sorry. No, nah, they were going to come in here and say, all right, they're a man down. Let's get them. So coach never, and the, the guys, they just like, I don't feel sorry for me, man. Just go out there and handle business. Well, you, business was certainly handled. You guys, especially at 05, 06, I mean, that team was crazy. One seed pretty much there the whole way through. And then obviously just your, just the entire NCAA tournament run felt like magical. I mean, I mean, even like in Big East tournament, Alan Ray got hurt. And then and you guys got, you guys still stuck with it um, and ran out all the way until you just faced that, the juggernaut of a Florida team, um, but it was a, a hell of a run. And I bet you every Villanova fan who's seen many, many years of Villanova basketball would tell you that Elite Eight run and the Sweet 16 run before it was as important to the program as as any championship even, I bet. I would say I bet they put it right there. And they bet put that 05-06 team right on the same pedestal with all the other with all the other great teams. So I think there's definitely truth to the fact that you guys built it. And then and then obviously the success that came that followed had a lot to do with with those years. Yeah. The way we the way we look at it and the way that the guys like, you know, the Jalen and the Arches and the Josh Hartz, you know, those guys that was on the 2016 team and the 2018, they understand who the foundation is of Villanova. Um, this past, let's say, I don't know, 16, 17 years, they understand who the foundation um, was to, you know, those championship teams. Like I walk into, I walk into practice and, you know, everything is done the same, the way, the, the way we done, the way we did things there. And I think that's important to, to understand, you know, what guys sacrifice and what guys put out there and blood, sweat and tears, everything they did before you, because if you don't understand um, the history of, you know, how things are done, you're not going to be successful there at Villanova. And I think that um, completely honest with you, that team uh, with me, Allen, Cal, three NBA guys, then you got Will Sheridan, um, successful guy. You got Mike Nardi, then you got Dante Cunningham coming off the bench. Another NBA guy, Dwayne Anderson is a coach there. You just think about all of those guys and you think about Coach Pinkney being there. You think about Brett Gunn and they're both NBA coaches. Like that team, 
team set the tone for everything that's going on now. And I know it don't, you know, like you say, you have a, a, a younger crowd that listen to you guys. But if you don't understand that, then you, you really don't understand Villanova basketball and you're not a Villanova basketball fan. Because I had to really understand what Ed Pinkney did and what Kerry Kittles did before I can be successful at, you know, passing that torch on to Scotty Reynolds and those guys. So that's why I say you just have to you have to know your history and you got to know exactly what the coaching staff and, and what people want from you because if you don't you you'll end up in a in a transfer protocol or whatever it may be but you need to understand the history of the program and the guys who who basically put it all out there so you can be successful so you can see them on tv and be like wow i would like to go to villanova they're always on tv but it's the reason why they're on tv because the guys <laughs> before him yeah that's the, right yeah they laid the groundwork that's right that's right and and yeah i mean it's easy to draw the lineage of success uh, off of that team especially in the jay Wright era uh coaching era of of the program um and i, I agree wholeheartedly that if you haven't listened to or watched videos of or done your home work on those 0405 teams then then you gotta because those teams were just it was like electric and all the highlights and all the big games etc it was awesome all right i want to take a moment here and pivot off to a different topic i wanted to start with the i wanted to start with the easy stuff randy and then i want to talk a little bit more now about about you your story and your life experience basically what i want to do here is I want to talk about your upbringing and where I want to go with it is not to talk about it and being like, oh, wow, like you came from, you know, inner city Newark and now you're the underdog story, et cetera. Like, I don't want to focus on on that as much as I want to talk about like the actual system that you were raised in. Like, I feel like in the United States, we like to talk about this like American dream concept of like, oh, like you can come from anywhere and, and make it big. And that's not where I want to focus. I actually want to talk about and like dig into what was it like growing up in Newark 20 plus years ago? It was it was a place where if you made a mistake, your life can be cut short. If you made the wrong mistake, you could be in jail as a juvenile for a long time. I was arrested as a juvenile. If you if you didn't walk a straight line, and a lot of times if you did walk a straight line, and it was a lot of situations where if you made one mistake, your life could be over as far as just being having a record, um, being a felon, convicted felon, or your life could be cut short because someone gunned you down. And so a lot of teachers coming in from outside of the city understand that um, or understood that. But for me, Newark was, is everything for me, right? It's the concrete jungle. It's the reason why I carry myself with the way I do. Like Newark is a part of me. It's instilled in me. Toughest city, one of the toughest cities in New Jersey, right? Tons of basketball players, tons of um, successful people from, you know, the Queen Latifahs of the world, the, Sha- um, the Shaquille O'Neal's. As just, and the list goes um, on and on and on from like Black Clef and the Fugees, Lauren Hill, people like that. Michael B. Jordan, like, and like I said, the list, the list goes on and on, but it's a, it's a tough place to grow up in. And did I, do I ever complain? Absolutely not. Do not complain about it because it, it helped mold me into the person that I am now. And right. that's something that I'm extremely proud of. That's something that, you know, if someone said you could go back and change it, would you? Absolutely not. Because the reason I think the way I do, the reason I carry myself the way I do is all because of, of Newark. And I appreciate that. Was it tough at times? Absolutely. Um, did I have fun and didn't even know that I was living in poverty? Absolutely. But at the end of the day, it, it made me who I am and molded me into the man that I am today. So I'm thankful for um, my city. As a follow-up question to that, 
How much did you feel like were you aware of the of the racial implications of of, of where you live, of where you look, grew up in, and like the the economic circumstance? And like you know, you said like, oh, it's like this community, um, and you grew up in that community, and it and it helped and it helped make you who you are. Was there an outside world? Was it ever bigger than that, or was it really just in that community, and that was every day? I can remember when you, when I when I can tell something was different. I remember going to one of my friends' house. Uh, he played on my AU team, and he lived in Wayne, New Jersey. And I remember going to his house, and I just walked in his house like, wow, this is your whole house. Like this this thing is humongous. This thing is you got theaters, you got everything thing in here and he's just like it didn't like phase him and i remember when when his mom's i think it was his, his dad his dad dropped me back off and then he was looking at where i grew up at like wow man you live here and that's when it, it kind of, that's when it hit me not kind of but that's when it hit me that it is it's two different worlds it's two different worlds and a lot of times people don't people don't understand it is because they turn a blind eye to it and they say, well, it ain't got nothing to do with me or it don't have anything to do with anyone that look like me. So I'm not going to get involved in it and I'm not going to say anything, but I know what's going on there is wrong, but it doesn't have anything to do with me. So just seeing that and just being a part of, you know, an AU team, being a part of successful teams with it was some extremely, let's just say wealthy people that live different lives. And their son, you know, played on the court with us. Their son traveled with us, hung out with us and did everything. When we took the uniforms off and, you know, they went to where they had to go to their home and we went to our home, it was totally different experiences. And so that's the first time I kind of, it kind of hit me where I was like, whoa, it is different. You know, you see it on TV, but it's not just TV. This is real life. And like I said, it made me even more determined to be successful because that's what I wanted. And I'm telling you, just, just going and experiencing those things and having these conversations and just seeing certain things just like it's different it's different and i think the the main thing for for me and those experiences was just saying like hey you know i'm gonna put everything out there to be as successful as possible right and well certainly you have i guess i'm just i'm just i just want to dig in a little bit more in painting the picture for a listener base like so you said that you said before that like you know there could be you know one mistake and you could end up you know you could end up in juvie or you could end up just just stuck in a never-ending cycle basically it, it, it sounds to me like this was something that was constant so like was it like every day you saw something or was it every week I'm like I really want to get like a like, I really want to paint a picture <laughs> this is something you saw every day man yeah like if you if you it's like so it's like it's surrounding towns, right? Which for me looking back and, and me going back to uh, where I grew up from, they're buffer towns, right? So a buffer town would be like a Bloomfield, Newark, Bloomfield. And then the next town past that would be, you know, where everyone, parents are bringing in, let's say X amount of money, let's say six figures. Let's just say that buffer town is probably, it's nice. It's nice enough to live there, but you know, it's apartment buildings, it's some nice houses, but it was, it's all buffer towns around Newark, right? So if you drive into these buffer towns, they only really patrol the borders of Newark. So if you just, as soon as you drive into this, let's say this, let's say a Bloomfield, as soon as you drive in, you're getting pulled over. <laughs> if you, if you're black, if you're Hispanic, no matter what, I don't, I have driven through these buffer towns to visit. And, you know, at, at that time I was an NBA player. As soon as I drove over into these buffer towns, they'd be like, oh, how did you get this car? Um, did you steal this car? Running the plates, walking around it, talking extremely reckless to you. 
And I'm like, nah, man, like, I'm, you know, I'm a basketball player. Like, I'm not this, or I'm not that. And then once they run you and once they Google, they're like, oh, sorry, man, sorry. You're not one of them. And then you think to yourself, like, not one of them. Like, what are you talking about? But that's just the mindset in these places. And, you know, that's what, that's just my experience with it. And I have tons of experience with it. But that people, I call them buffer towns because it's just like, it's like a town that's not as bad as Newark, but, you know, it has a lot of good things going on, which Newark has a ton of good things going on but then they just stop every black and hispanic person as they come through the town and just make sure they're making sure they're policing it is no violation there's nothing they're just policing it before you get through the town and then once you get through that town it's probably like a 95 percent chance that you're going to get stopped at the next town because the next town is where the executives work so and it definitely is a problem not just you know in, in newark but it's a problem all over the country randy how how does that make you feel i mean at this point the example you just gave you're in the league like by all definitions you've you've made it like you are incredibly successful and then you're back into a situation like you just just described like what's going through your head what are you feeling when that happens the one thing that I, I always feel is, is like why are you scared why are you scared of me right like i have done nothing to you if anything i should be scared of you because you know 1619 into into now we know and everything is is out there but we know what you have done to my ancestors and we know what you have done to the communities and you know redlining and all that so why are you afraid of me like i'm not going to do anything to you i'm not going to hurt you and so that's 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 the way i feel personally because it just feels as though there's no place for it is racism alive and real absolutely but me personally there's no place for it but millions of people don't feel that way they want it to stay how it is you say black lives matter they say all lives matter and to me that's just wrong we're not saying that all lives doesn't matter we just saying that hey in this in this house right there's a burning apartment right that's all we saying you need to go to the source you need to put that fire out figure out what's going on what have we done wrong how can we fix it and have these tough conversations that's all people are saying we need to have these tough conversations and how does that i mean you're a father now i have to imagine that your experiences and what you've seen personally as well as others influence how you raise them, the lessons you teach them. Can you talk a little bit about that? So when all of this George Floyd stuff um, went like was going on and then like everything was on TV and it's no school. So the kids are around, you're watching what's going on. They're watching what's going on. And they're, they're asking like, why is that guy on his neck for so long? And it's just like all these kids, like they're not naive no more. Like they understand exactly what's going on because for one, you can't, you can hide some things, but you can't hide everything. And so we just explained to them like, Hey, you know, as a African-American man, if I get pulled over and I don't follow everything to the T or even if you do. Uh, or even if I do, like my life could be ended for no apparent reason. Because a lot of times when that happened, you know, they probably never dealt with. I had a friend tell me that uh, he was like, I'm the only black guy that worked with, you know, eight white cops. And he was like, all of the eight white cops, he was like, three of them has never been around black people, like in a setting, let's say like a barbecue or whatever. He said the only time that the one, the guy said that he's around a black guy is him at work. So he was like, just imagine this is the, this is the cop said to me. He said, so imagine if he get pulled over, right? And he never, and he doesn't understand certain slang or body language or body movement. And he think this guy's trying to hurt him. He said, what's going to happen? That guy might not have a weapon, but that cop feel a certain way and he feel threatened. 
he could pull the trigger or he could pull him out the car, put him in cuffs and, and really hurt him or end his life. And so as he said that to me, it's just like you're explaining to your kids what's going on. You got a 12 year old, a nine year old and a seven year old, but you just explain it to them like this is real life. Because if you don't have these tough conversations now, it's always going to come back. Something may happen in school, something may happen in sports, but those conversations are always going to come up. If I'm saying it as a, you know, African-American parent, I think that, you know, all of my, you know, white brothers and sisters should be having the same tough conversation with their kids and explaining exactly what's going on. Why is it this way or why? And just breaking it down. So the cycle won't repeat itself. That's the only way you end the cycle is addressing the problem and saying, this is wrong. Let's fix it. How do we fix it? Let's fix it. You, you have this is not something that can be done with incrementalism like the the thought of like oh everyone gets a little bit better or whatever no this is like a full-on tackle this head-on yeah are you going to convince everyone in every generation right this second of what's right and what's wrong no but like that doesn't mean that we can't eliminate the structural things that exist in society like but what you described before about what you grew up in that's actually the systemic racism because you have you basically have a barrier of police preventing you from even leaving and so you're basically shoved into this situation barricaded in in theory right you go out you don't comply with like one order or like they perceive you as a threat which they already perceive you as a threat because they pulled you over to begin with and then all of a sudden now you're in this situation where maybe you're doing time or whatever and then maybe a college doesn't want to bring you in or whatever and you can't escape it's almost like a situation in which you're trapped and cannot escape and it's you know why? Because it's, your life means nothing to them from yeah. the beginning of time. Like think about when the first slave ship was brought into uh, Virginia in 1619. And it's like, if you're not addressing that and trying to reconstruct that, it's like you're a part of the problem. Like if you're sitting there looking at it and saying, wow, that, that kind of bothers me. And you're not willing to address this situation and try to fix this situation, then you're a part of the problem. And then if you do address it and take it to the person or whoever, you know, the group may be to change it and they say, oh, no, 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 we can't touch that the founding father, then they're part of the problem. I want to talk about that in the context of Villanova. Obviously, Father Peter sent an email out today. Um, yeah, today's, today's the 13th. I mean, we can talk about the merits of, of if it was adequate or not. But like the what why it came up was the it was a response to the at Black Villanova Instagram page that's been posting stories constantly. Uh, and really kind of the university sat on it for a little bit. Rob and I had talked to a couple of people and found out that they were trying to craft a, an appropriate message, um, but took a long time to get that message out. I'm just curious, like, what's your reaction coming from your point of view as being a, as having been a, a basketball player, a black, a black person on Villanova's campus, and then, and then now as an alum, former NBA player, and kind of going back to school quite a bit, and given your relationship with with the coach and the program, like, what is, what's your reaction to, to, to the at Black Villanova page? It's everything just to be completely honest, because people go through a lot of situations at Nova and it's like they have no one to say it to. And if you do say it, you know, oh, you know, she's pulling a race card or he's pulling a race card. But things that go on there is real. And I'm not saying it's coming from the administration or staff workers, but students. Students come from certain places where, you know, it's like we said before, it's taught. And to just, you know, give these, you know, African-Americans, people of color, give them, like, allow them to have a voice. Why are we, you know, not trying to silence their voice, but why don't, you know, athletes have a voice there? Because athletes come from some 
a majority of the athletes there that let's just say from 1970 until let's say now, you know, majority of the, the really good athletes that push the program and, and have driven the program have been African-American. And, and that's just facts. Uh, we live in a small bubble at Villanova and it's a small community and certain things go on. And you could just walk and you can walk around campus one day and you can look and you see you see white kids walking around, mostly all of the majority of the black kids, which are, they're, they're black kids there that's not athletes, but majority of the black kids you see are usually in a team, you know, a, a jacket or a sweatpants and a sweatshirt that you know, like that person is a basketball player. It says Villanova football on it. That person is a football player or track or whatever it may be, but it's real. And I think that Father Peter, who I have a relationship with, like where, you know, I can, you know, say certain things to him. And I know that he re he respects me as a man and I respect him as a man. And I just think that it's important because racism shouldn't be allowed um, nowhere on any campus. You know, you can't cheer for me while I'm running up and down the court with Villanova on my chest, but then, you know, dislike me or, or you're my enemy or trying to stay away from me when we're off of the court. So I think that they're moving in the right direction. Me personally, I wish that, you know, a lot of things would move a little quicker when it comes to race, um, like the girl, the Villanova soccer player. It took a little bit, but they did what they had to do. Uh, Mark Jackson came out, who's an awesome guy, great guy, came out and said what he had to say, but it just seemed like it was a lot of push from um, students, um, alumni. And once they saw that everyone was against it, then they had no other choice but to make sure that person didn't come into, you know, our small community at Villanova. I mean, Randy, I just want to follow up on that. So, you know, what what in your mind would you like to see the university do? It's a, it's a lot of things, man. For one, I would like to see more um, African-American students on campus. I'm not sure of the exact number, but I think someone somewhere was like 75 percent um, white. I would like to see more black people, African-Americans that work um, as administration, not just in a kitchen crew where they're serving you food, but, you know, making decisions, um, making sure that, you know, black books are read, making sure that things are taught where you understand exactly who these kids are that we're recruiting so hard to come to our school and represent our, our school. But we need to understand who they are because we can't deal with a situation the way we would deal with it if something's wrong with them. We need to understand who they are. And I think that the only way that happens is if you have African-Americans that are working arm in arm with you right next to you. Because I, if you walk into the office building and I look around and I see everyone is white. And if you look around, the majority of the people are white. Or if you look at, you know, coaching staffs, and I know we have, you know, some of my former teammates that are on Villanova um, coaching staff, which is Nardi, white guy, um, Dwayne, you know, we have Kyle Neptune um, on the staff, which is awesome. But if you just look at all of the other coaching staffs and you're just like, all right, well, I know there has been some successful people here that, that play, you know, soccer or it has been a women's soccer, or I know it's been some successful people that has played, you know, black girls that played women's basketball. But I just think that you need to just look at that and, and try to fix it. Like you can't just say, all right, this is the way it is. And this is the way it's going to be. Now you need to try to fix it because you need to be on the right side of history. I'll just throw in there that I actually think that you fail everybody by by doing it. Like it's an everybody problem. Yeah, because it, look, think about the think about the U.S. It's a melting pot, right? right? It's a little bit of everybody. Right. So that's how that's how universities should look. Right. I think it's a problem when universities just just look a certain way, and it's just like wow, like no one here looks like me. You know, you go into a class and everyone's white, and it's like you're the only black kid. And guess what? I'm a student athlete. It's a problem. What's your message to the fan base 
about 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 this not like in the context of villanova but even broader like like you made a good comment before like hey if you're willing to cheer for me as i'm running up and down the court playing my heart out for you and i'm and and let's be clear like taking the university to crazy new heights I, I mean, I totally get that point about like, hey, you can't do that and then just try and silence me off the court and not let me have yep. the voice. Like, like I'm yep. here. I've done so much for the school. And, and now you just, oh, but you just don't want to hear it and listen. So like, what's your message to the, what's your message to the fan base about, about everything? My message to the fan base is that Coach Wright is a, forget the coaching, um, the way he coaches and forget the accolades. He's an unbelievable human being when it comes to this um, social injustice. Um, he knows exactly what's going on. He knows exactly what needs to be done um, and he's willing to do it. And I had so many, you know, conversations with Coach about this and he understands that, you know, change needs to happen and it don't need to happen in the next two, three, four, it needs to happen now. And the conversations that I have had with Coach has just been amazing. And I respect him for it because he's given me his point of view and why he should say certain things and why he shouldn't. And then I'll go back at him and say, I think you should because of this. And he says to me, okay, I'll work on it. And then we orchestrate certain things. And if it makes sense for him, do it. Because when it, whenever it's involving African-Americans and racism, I think that I'm always for pushing if you don't get this message that coach is trying to say, or if you don't understand the approach that, you know, coach is trying to push, you know, Nova Nation into, then you are part of the problem. And, you know, my conversations with coach has been everything for me, where it's just, it's opened my eyes. Some things that, you know, I, I didn't even think about that didn't even con concern me, that didn't even cross my mind. So I, I appreciate them. And to, for Nova Nation to know that you have a guy like that, that's not only the best coach in the country, but is willing to work for change and want to see it now, um, you should be proud of that. That's awesome. I'm really glad to hear that. It's been enlightening, I think, getting to know the program a little bit more in depth and, and hearing a lot about the the great coaching staff and players that we have. I'm curious, Randy, you know, what's your what's your expectation for the fan base in terms of like what do you personally expect them from them as it relates to to the efforts to kind of change the current climate, whether it's at Villanova or more broadly as well? My expectations are to recognize what is going on that is wrong and try to fix it. Yeah, can you fix everyone? Absolutely not. But can you fix your inner circle? Or if you see someone saying something that may not be right and you know it's not right and it's directed towards you know African-Americans, you need to step up and say something. And that that's my main message. Like, are you gonna be able to change everyone? No. But if you could change one person and then that one person could change another person and the message could keep being relayed and then they pass that down to their kids, it's going to be a different place. Not like, only Villanova, but the world. I like that a lot. It's uh, very actionable and it's it's certainly not, a lot of times, not easy conversations to have. Even None of this. With this, this conversation I'm having with you guys isn't easy because this is in my MO. This is in my makeup. My makeup is, you know, happy-go-lucky. You know, I'm one of the success stories out of that program. So you, do you think I'm comfortable, you know, going against the grain? Absolutely not. But do, does it need to be done? Absolutely. And if someone says, hey, you know, I'm, I'm not feeling, you know, what Randy said on the Full 40 podcast, like, I think it was wrong. I think he don't know what he's talking about. If someone says that and, and jumps out there and, 
and I know who it is, then they're part of the problem. I know exactly who I'm dealing with. And that's something that I said to Coach Wright. I said, if you put something up um, on your social platform and people are saying something about it and you're just talking about change and if it happens to Jalen Brunson or if it happened to Kyle Lowry or if it happened to Sadiq Bey, how would you feel, right, if a cop was on their neck like that? Because that could easily be them. You got to think. They're driving back and forth on these highways. They're driving in and out of states. It could easily be them. So if someone says something about it or if someone, like if, or if it's negative feedback, then I mean, guess what? They're part of the problem. And if you think change is not coming, what's the kid named? Bo, the bold kid that just went to um, the black um, university? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. if you think it's not coming, if all – think about this, right? If all these African-American kids, right, which are some of the better basketball players and football players, which basically drives the, res- the, um, the revenue and the NCAA, if they start going to these schools, who do you think going to get the TV contracts? Right, right. Where majority of your money come from? The TV contracts, right? So just think about it. So it, it starts out real little, but then once they're not showing up or, or you, it's harder to recruit them and they don't want to go there, and you're saying, why? Because you were a part of the problem. The reason why we can't compete anymore or the reason why we're not on this is because as a whole, we're all we're part of the problem because we saw exactly what was going on and we didn't want to be a part of change. We didn't want to help fix it. We just wanted it to stay the way it was. So that's my message to Nova and, you know, just everyone. Just be a part of the change. Be on the right side of history because if you could cheer for me while I'm running up and down the court, but you have a problem being in a social gathering with me after that, then you're a part of the problem. Couldn't say it better ourselves. Appreciate that. And, you know, it's something that uh, Rob and I on our on the full 40 have been pushing more um, was to hear like you more said, from... Did you say something about um, systemic racism? Yeah. Or, think about it. So if you don't think systemic racism is real, I had, I got this, so I, my foundation is Randy Foy Foundation. I have a, a program within the foundation that's called Assist for Life, which I, you know, try to mentor, you know, four boys and four girls and, and just help them, like identify them. They're not, you know, straight A students. They're not failing students, but they're like right in the middle of the pack. They may have a single parent or a grandparent. The same situation that I went through. And I remember we were going to certain places. We were planting uh, flowers. We would go to like the Turtleback Zoo. We were doing it in front of the school. And then one day I said to the guy, which is a Nova guy, I said to him, I said, I want to go into where you guys work, which is one of the biggest banks in the world. And I was like, I want the kids to see exactly what it takes and how hard you have to work. And they took us to the trading floor, right? And then they took us all over the building, like first class treatment. And he's looking around and it was no one there African-American. And you got to think, I'm walking with eight African-American little kids. Wow. And then you may go to another four and it may be one or two. So I'm just thinking to myself, like, well, I just, you know, encountered at least, you know, a hundred plus people. And I probably saw two black people. And I'm just, and, and people don't think it's alive, it's alive and it's well. Because I was like, this is this is real. The systems are set up for me to only hire, you know, people who look like me. And we may not notice it at times, but it's real. Like, is it is yeah. it is it is Zex in there? You know, are are African American? Absolutely. But from what I saw when I went in there, just basic jobs, you know, trading, and I didn't, I saw two. And that probably could have changed by now, but you know, it was mind boggling and just like, wow, like I got, I'm standing here with, you know, these eight, well, I had, I think I had like three, you know, Hispanic kids and this um, five African-American kids. And it's like, no one I could say, Hey, look at him. Like I wasn't even thinking of that. And that's what, that's my experience from it. It was like, wow. Ain't really no one that was in there that was black or Spanish that I seen, that I've seen. So it's real, it's alive and as well. 
And that needs to change. Talk about systemic racism. I mean, just like play back the interview and what we talked about here on the interview. You have basically a situation in which one mistake could fuck up your entire life because you're just skating on thin ice to begin with. Then you have a situation in which you have cops almost surrounding a city to make sure no one gets out. Then if you do get out, you go to you go to colleges and universities where people are trying to push back change and not let it happen. And and then you get out to the real world and let's just say you've made it that far. If you're in the wrong neighborhood because, you know, people don't expect to see black people in that neighborhood getting pulled over left and right. And it's just like, think about every situation that that anyone has encountered and like, think about how easy it is to make a basic mistake. We're human. And and think about like all of that stuff. And basically, if you look a certain way, any one of those situations can catch you in a massive pitfall that'll just send you into a tailspin in your life. And, and like, but if you look another way, then, oh, it's just a mistake and someone can, can help you out. And, you know, you're just a kid and you're fine and no big deal. And we want to get you in the right direction. So it's, I mean, that's obvious. It's, it's like, it's like, the systemic racism is is like right here and present. Like in the last 60 minutes of this interview, we just we just laid it out. Yeah. Systemic, systemic racism is real. And when you face it, you know, every day growing up living in um, a city like Newark, New Jersey, it hurt when you get out and, and you see these the lives these people live. And it's like, oh, that's the American dream. He worked hard. He, it's like, no, nah, not really, because um, the reason why he's, you know, at this bank or the reason why he's there is because his father knew this guy and this, this guy gave him a chance. And, you know, this girl here, her dad knew this guy. So she's interning here. So while we're working out in the summer and we're busting our tail and going to summer school to make sure everything is right. So when you sit back and cheer for us that, you know, we're not um, flunking out, you know, the same people that are cheering for us when they go home in the summertime, they're doing internships at Goldman Sachs, at Morgan Stanley, at uh, Merrill Lynch, uh, at all of these, all these top banks that we know run the world. And it's, it's just like, you can't, it's like when you get out and you do certain things, yeah, is, is it going to be one or two of us is just exceptional? And do we have to be exceptional and damn near perfect? Absolutely. You look at Barack Obama, he had to be damn near perfect to get there. But at the end of the day, that's why, you know, I, I always say, and I, and I say this to my kids, that, you know, you keep working to be the absolute best, you know, human being that you can be. If you feel something or if you recognize something, say it to me or your mom. But this is going to change. And if this, like, for me using my platform, which I have been u- using and speaking out about it, have I got some nasty comments? Have, have I gotten some nasty direct messages? Absolutely. But that's not going to stop it. And like I said, if, we, if we're not friends no more or you don't want to talk to me or you don't want to see me or you don't want me around, then I know that you're a part of the problem. Randy, is there anything else that we didn't ask you about that you wanted to talk about? One thing I want to say, man, being at Villanova, it's a great place, right? Does it have its flaws? Absolutely. Do, you know, me, my wife that went there, do we love Villanova University? Absolutely. Do we want to see Villanova be on the right side of history? You fucking right. Just put it that way. <laughs> but yeah. they need to, like, Nova needs to understand that certain things that needs to be addressed, right? So as these things are, are addressed and they come out, like, don't come out and try to cover both sides. Just come out and say racism is wrong, which they did. Racism is wrong. Don't try to walk that fine line because racism isn't right in no areas. No walks of life should there be racism. And do I want to see Villanova on the right side of history when it comes to these issues, these social injustices? Yes, because I think that that's a a unique place.
You know, it's where I met my wife. It's where my life has changed. Is where a human being and Coach Wright has helped shape me into who I am today. Just from me believing in him, from me believing in a university and what it what it takes just to be a Villanova basketball player. And that is just not on the court. That's all walks of life. And that's something that he preaches. So I want Villanova to be on the right side of this because I want to continue to celebrate with them. I want to continue to to help them um, learn in these situations. And do I think we're do I think personally that we're going to get there? Yes, but we have a lot of work to do. Yep, a lot of work to do. Starts now. Yes, should have started works. long ago, but it starts yeah. now. Starts now. <laughs> awesome. Randy, thank you so much for, for coming on. I know that it's not, you know, we talked about it. It's not the most comfortable uh, conversation. And I'm sure you'd rather talk about maybe even more about your foundation and, and your and your MBA career and, and everything that you're continuing to do with your ongoing career. Uh, but, but you know, obviously this is, this is what we need to talk about now. And it's a matter of getting this and getting this message out now. So I appreciate you coming on the program with us and having this tough conversation with us. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This is Chris and Rob signing off. And as always, let's Let's go. go.